Zivie Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zivieowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Today's episode has been sponsored by the Iceland Readers Retreat, which is happening April 29th to March 3rd in Iceland. Who doesn't want to go to Iceland? While you're there, you'll get small group lectures and talks by renowned authors, learning about the rich literary heritage of this Nordic book-loving nation. Adam Gopnik is the special guest this year, and he will be doing a small seminar on memoir. Between all these intimate book discussions, you get to have literary theme tours of the countryside, hear from other Icelandic writers, and discover some really cool artifacts in Reykjavik's museums. This sounds so fun, and I'm hoping I can somehow manage to get there, uh, but you should check it out at Iceland. IcelandReadersRetreat.com. That's IcelandReadersRetreat.com. The price is $1,600, but that includes so much, everything for basically four days of your life. So check it out at the Iceland Readers Retreat. Thank you so much. Angela Himsel is the author of Memoir, A River Could Be a Tree. Angela has contributed to the New York Times, the Jewish Week, the Forward, and Lilith, among other publications. She received the American Jewish Press Association Award for her column on Detevka on Zeek.net. Angela has a BA from Indiana University, which included two years at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and an MFA from the City College of New York. Welcome, Angela. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. So can you please tell listeners what A River Could Be a Tree is about? It's a memoir, and it's about growing up. I'm the seventh of 11 kids, and I grew up in southern Indiana in what some people might consider a cult. Let's call it an alternative kind of religion. It's called the Worldwide Church of God. And we believed that the world was coming to an end like any second, and we were going to be spirited away to Petra in Jordan when the world came to an end. So I grew up that way, and then ultimately, through many twists and turns, I ultimately converted to Judaism. So it's about that particular religious journey, but it's also, I would hope that it's also about the possibility of change in any sense of the word. You've gone through so much, this like major transformation. (laughs) Yeah. When did you decide this was a book? You know, I didn't, to be honest. I love fiction and I was always writing fiction and I really did not, was not that interested in writing about myself, to be quite honest. Then I was writing some essays that had been published in The Jewish Week and I had a column on Anja Tevka. And a lot of the essays drew from my background and I was sort of juxtaposing them. Angela Tevka comes from, you know, it was a play on Anna Tevka because yeah. my name is Angela and Anna Tevka about this little tiny village, Jewish village. And I felt like I lived in this little tiny village on the Upper West Side of New York City, which was very different than the rural place that I inhabited as a child. And so I called it Angela Tevka and I kind of juxtaposed my world today to the world I kind of left behind, even though I didn't really leave it behind. I wouldn't say I left it behind. It certainly carried it with me, as we all do. So I was writing these essays, and a friend of mine said, you know, you should write a memoir. And I said, eh, I don't really feel like it. I'm not interested in myself that much. And then I just thought, you know what? I have all these essays. Maybe I'll just link them all together and call it a memoir. (laughs) I was so lazy as a writer. And I started to do that, and it was clearly not working. And I needed the beginning, the middle, and the end, and I needed an arc, and I needed everything that you need in fiction, obviously, but in nonfiction. And then I started to get serious about it and really wanted to make it into not a lot of separate stories and vignettes, but in a a complete kind of 
book. And so that's when I really started to work on it as a memoir. I really did just back into it, though, actually. How long did it take to write? Oh, The Truth. Yeah, The Truth. The Truth. 14 years. Wow. Yeah, but I wasn't working on it the whole time because I was going back to fiction and my big love. And I was also raising kids and just and writing essays and that sort of thing. So I would write it and I would think, oh, this is it. I've got it. I think this is it. Sent it out to agents. It wasn't it. Didn't get an agent. Then I revised it, sent it out. And I did that. And that really is the process for me of being a writer. Other people undoubtedly are better writers and faster writers and don't start thinking that they've got it before they've got it. So it took me a while, really, to to get it to this place. Well, you have so much information in there. I mean, it's not just your story. I feel like you wove in a lot of religious oh, history and like, thank I don't you. know, I, I feel like you must have done some research. I love research. Yeah, That's the tell, other I feel thing. Like, I was like, does she kind of secretly <laughs> want to be writing a history I book? Secretly, <laughs> I tell you, not so secretly, I would like to be a librarian or... Yes, a historian or a teacher, because mm-hmm. I really like that. I like to be taught things. I like to learn new things. When I read a book, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, I love to learn new things. And, and I like it when they make it interesting for me to learn it. So I don't feel like I'm in History 101. So definitely that was, it became more imperative to me because I certainly realized while I was writing the book, something that I understood, but not so well, because sometimes you just don't understand these things. I certainly understood that we are all a part of a much bigger world, and our own little world may seem incredibly important, but I needed to really explore the world that my parents came from. I needed to explore the world of immigration, because immigration plays such an important role in American history for absolutely everybody. So I really needed to kind of go into that. And I also needed to go into in my case, the Catholic and Lutheran divide, really, because my mom was Catholic and my dad was Lutheran. And then when they came together, it was like a a very big Shonda, as they would say. (laughs) In Yiddish, it was a very big shame. So I really needed to explore that. I spent entirely too much time on Martin Luther, let me just tell you. (laughs) I know a lot more about Martin Luther I have, like, flashbacks to, like, fifth grade worksheets with my, like, pencil script filling in, like, who was Martin Luther. Yeah. By the way, not that this is any of my business, but it is not too late for you to be a history teacher or (laughs) anything you want. I mean, my kids, I have kids at four schools. They would love to have a fabulous author, historian, teacher, so... Thank Just you. saying, if you okay. think about it. Okay. So back to your book. Yes. You are the seventh of 11 children. I am. What was that like? Chaotic. I mean, you have four kids. Let's just triple that. I, I know. I that's, I that's know. what I'm doing in my head, and I want to just like, crawl under the covers. I and- know. I think my mother did probably. <laughs> I think. Um, I think that it's not until you have your own kids, to be honest, that you realize what huge undertaking it is to have one child. You know, like one child seems like a huge undertaking when you're a new parent. Mm-hmm. And then when you have more than that, it's like, wow, how did they do that? Did they drink? They didn't. They actually didn't drink. They didn't smoke weed, which <laughs> a lot of parents are doing, apparently. But uh, no, they didn't. But it wasn't easy. Did you? Think, is, are you going to say also that they had like no help? They had no help. Obviously, yeah. they had no money. They had no money. But like, how would you even get everybody? How would you even transport everybody? 
anywhere. On top of each other's laps, because this is before, uh, you know, seatbelts were actually a necessity. So I, I don't, I never had a bed to myself. I always had a bed with a couple of siblings. It just depended on the rotating list of who was moving out and that sort of thing. But in fairness, my oldest sister is eight years older than me. My youngest sister is 14 years younger than me. So there were not 11 kids living at home at the same time. But I guess there were always like eight or nine. It's hard for me to remember. But yeah, we had three bedrooms. So we were always on top of each other. And there was a lot of fighting. Who stole what? Who decided to wear somebody else's underwear because their underwear wasn't clean? Like the usual siblings, but times a lot. And did you, were you in charge of doing like all your own chores? Like did you have yes. to do? Yes, everybody had their own chores. We were always mopping with a mop or with a rag on the floor. And yeah, laundry the house was a that. mess. Yeah. yeah, the laundry we actually didn't have a washing machine and a dryer for a long time. So we had to go up to the trailer court, which is not in the book. We had to go up to the trailer court and where they had, you know, public laundromat and we had to do laundry on a Sunday afternoon. And there were always about 10 loads of laundry. So we would just hang out there for the afternoon. But I will say, I think that one of the benefits of it, let's just say, is that those were in some sense, when I look back, absolutely great afternoons. I'd hang out with my sisters. We would laugh and joke and drink tab from the... Hello tab. <laughs> Hello tab from the machines. And the other thing, I guess, is that, you know, you certainly don't take things for granted. And I think that of all of my siblings in general, I would say they're all pretty easygoing. There's, it's like, you know, you don't just get all head up about something because it's like, you know, it could be worse. It always comes down to that, you know. It wasn't it's like easy. That, um, since we're on the Jewish theme with yeah. your book and everything, you know that that folktale, it's the topic of many children's books, how the rabbi comes and the guy has all these kids, he doesn't know what to do. And right. he says, well, get like, get a cow and see right. what Now get like two yes. roosters and then right. they get all the animals and then he takes Into the, the animals away right. and he's like, oh, it's peaceful. Right. He's like, see? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's all about perspective, what you're used to and and that sort of thing. Having said that, I'm very happy whenever I don't have to share a bed with anybody. <laughs> yeah. And you decided to have three kids. I did. I have three kids. And I honestly, after having kids, I mean, I had so much more renewed respect for my parents. I mean, really, no help, worked really hard, and had to feed these kids and clothe them and all of it's that. Like having a party every day. Oh, not necessarily not really. a fun okay, not, party. Not a fun right. party. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm amazed at... And uh, one bathroom, by the way, just in case you're wondering. I was wondering. Yeah, one bathroom, lots of loud knocking. You've been in there for at least a half an hour. So I'm very fast in the bathroom now because never had time there. <laughs> wow. Yeah, there's a personal... Was note. there enough food, though? Did you all have enough you to know, eat? You know, we did have enough to eat, but I will say one of the things... Today, and I don't mean to make this a political thing, but, you know, when people talk about how, you know, there should be no government handouts, as somebody who grew up on the government handouts, I say, you know, why would you punish the kids, really? Because we had free lunches at school, you know, and there should be free lunches for kids who don't have food to eat, in my opinion. In fact, I think there should be free lunches for everybody at school because you shouldn't differentiate between kids because then that also puts them in an embarrassing position. But we joke still today about all of the Thanksgivings in which we had beans and cornbread. That was our Thanksgiving. Having said that, I like beans and cornbread, <laughs> so uh, it was okay. 
But yeah, my mom really made things stretch. And because my grandparents and my aunts and uncles and so on lived on farms, we also had chickens. So we did, and a big garden. So we did, you know, have our own food and we canned food and that sort of thing. But there was always food, but it was, you know, peanut butter sandwiches and beans and cornbread and that sort of thing. And again, it makes you just sort of be okay with whatever in many respects, I think. Did you ever feel, I know there's a scene in your book when you were about eight years old Uh and your family moved, they thought the end of the world was coming, they had to move houses and all up and left. Correct. Did you feel at the time like, oh, my family's a little different than everyone around me? Or were you a part of a whole community where everyone was doing things like that? No, we were the only ones in our county who were in this church, the Worldwide Church of God. We were the only ones. My mother's family was Catholic. My father's family was Lutheran, and they were not happy that we had joined this church. But there's nothing like being a kid and feeling that you're better than everybody else secretly. So I think I secretly thought, like, we had the truth, and they didn't. But you could feel many things at the same time. You know, it's a multiplicity of feelings here. So I definitely felt different than everybody else. Sometimes that was awkward, but sometimes I really just felt superior, to be honest, because we were chosen and they weren't. I felt bad about it that they weren't chosen. But, you know, we were, they weren't. And I, my parents, and obviously as an eight-year-old, you buy into anything mm-hmm. that your parents tell you. And if your parents tell you that Jesus is returning soon, like it was supposed to, he was supposed to return in 1975, your parents tell you this, then you believe them. So I didn't have any sense of, I mean, we had a much better house that we left behind than the farmhouse that we moved into, which had, a, you know, a coal-burning heat. We didn't have, like, we had to go down in the middle of the night and throw on some wood and some coal, you know what I mean? So we, we definitely were living like it was the 1950s, in a sense, or 40s, maybe. Or 1850s. No, maybe a little <laughs> like later. Like but, little house yeah. on the prairie. Kind of, right? Well, we had a furnace, and it had took coal and, and wood. Yeah. And when you were growing up, I'm mm-hmm. so sorry, your sister passed away. She did. Can you tell me a little more? Are you okay talking about I that? I am. Yeah. I wrote about it. It was one of the hardest things to write about, obviously, but it was such a, a seminal moment in my life. And it really, in many respects, was a turning point. Although I don't know that I realized it at the time, but I was eight years old and my sister was diagnosed with something, a heart illness of some sort. She was nine. And she was 15 months older than me. So we were very close. And so she suddenly, you know, was bedridden and she couldn't get out of bed. She did have a heart ailment. I believe my parents took her to the local doctor, but I think that, but I know that it was pretty much forbidden in the church to go to medical doctors because you were supposed to have enough faith that God would heal you. And if you didn't have the faith, that was even worse. So if you didn't have faith, you weren't going to get into the kingdom than the kingdom come. So you certainly wanted to have faith that God would heal you. So when I was researching the book, I did talk to my parents a little bit about it, but it was just really hard to have that conversation as to what exactly happened to her and could she have been saved had she had better medical care or any medical care? Because I don't believe she had any. Having said that, it was 1973. Heart surgery had 
was really just being pioneered at the time. I don't think, I think open heart surgery had just, I was researching this, open heart surgery had just begun, I believe. So, you know, it's impossible to know if she'd had better care, if she'd had antibiotics. It could have just been a case of antibiotics. I really don't know. So it was a really, really hard time to be 11 years old and your sister dies and she's not coming back. And it's the, the, the first time you deal with mortality it really does slap you in the face. It really does, no matter what your age. And it certainly does when you're 11 and you realize, wow, she's really not coming back. And I guess we didn't have enough faith. And so there is also that sense of self-blame, whether it's yourselves as a family or your individual self, that if this had happened, then that would have been taken care of. If I'd had more faith, then she might not have died. So I do think that when death happens in inexplicable ways, the people who survive are left with a sense, not just of loss, but of what if, you know? So it definitely took me a long time to process that, especially given that I was, you know, 15 months younger than her. So, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you. So you had this upbringing. Yes. And then you decide when you're in college that, well, first you realize you're gifted, you're Guidance counselor right. realizes you're like amazingly brilliant and you're no, 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 amazingly. Yes, I, yes. Was, I was smarter than the others. That's pretty much it. <laughs> okay. Well, don't okay. downplay it. But okay. anyway, um, yeah. so you end up going to college. Correct. And you're like the first one to go. Is that true? Or did um, you make that my up? older brother had gone, but okay. not, but the first girl, yes. The first girl to go. Yeah. And while you're there, you find a brochure about Israel and you decide you want to go. Right. And, that, and then your entire life changes. Correct. Then, again. Right. Where was this brochure? What did it look like? I want to start creating <laughs> like magical brochures. I, I remember. Well, what happened before that, I will tell you, is I had come home for the weekend, gone to church with my parents. We observed Sabbath on Saturdays, not on Sundays. So I went to church with my parents, and the minister got up there and pretty much just launched in and said that Satan had gotten hold of the church and that it was because of women wearing makeup that Jesus couldn't return. And I like makeup. I like it a lot. And so I really, that was hard for me. But I really believed, again, you go back to this kind of, it's almost like a magical realism. Like if this happened, then this would happen. So if I got the Holy Spirit, if I somehow could get that bolt of lightning, then I could get it. And so I actually went to this Office of Overseas Studies and I was going to go to Germany for the year. But then I saw this other brochure and it looked so sunny and bright compared to Germany, which was <laughs> a little dark. And so it was like, I think it was a picture of the Dome of the Rock, which is gorgeous and in Jerusalem. And it looked so happy and inviting and all of the words to me they were just like porn, like Judean desert, ooh, you know, and like, uh, you know, Bethlehem, mm, Nazareth. Mm. So I was all excited about the possibility of being in the Holy Land and holy in the sense that this is exactly where all of the events had taken place. And I think that for a lot of people, there's a sense that if you're in that physical location, whatever that physical location is, then you will be closer to the events that occurred there. Mm -hmm. So I felt like being there would just give me some kind of faith that I was lacking. And 
I thought that it would be fun, to be honest. I just thought it'd be fun. So I just decided to go. I was really struck by, okay, so you're, I'm sitting here. Yeah. You, obviously, you have yes. long blonde hair and yes. blue eyes and you're tall and you're of German descent. Yes. Yourself. Correct. So when you went to Israel, right. people were not having it in a way. They called right. what they were calling you slutty and sealing you right. out. Like doing right. all sorts of inappropriate yes, things at the time. Exactly. Which is awful. Awful. And then you went to Germany where you looked like everybody else. Correct. So you went from feeling like completely out of place to completely in place. And it just like, I don't know, somehow the juxtaposition of those two experiences. Right. When you're the same person. Right. I don't know. It just like had so much to do with identity and I don't right. know. Tell me how you felt about it. I think it. that, you know, it's funny because I mean, growing up in Southern Indiana, where everybody was white, everybody, seriously, everybody was white. Everybody looked like me. I mean, more or less, there was, there were a few, you know, variations, obviously. But honestly, if you had dark brown hair, you were considered, you know, quite exotic, actually. <laughs> at that time, it's not that way today. Obviously, it's a much bigger world that we live in. But at that time, it really was, it was settled by German Americans, really. Swiss were still considered a little outsiders. <laughs> so going to Israel where I never thought about um, how I looked because I looked like everybody else. So to suddenly have that pointed out to me was kind of shocking. And I think that it really did, by the way, make me so much more aware of discrimination on the basis of looks. And it also made me aware of um, being welcoming to people who look different or people who have disabilities or just anybody in general who looks as if they don't belong. And I'd never had that feeling before of not belonging physically. I didn't feel like I belonged necessarily spiritually or emotionally, but I didn't feel like I didn't belong physically. I belonged very much physically where to my you know, my town. So being out of place physically was definitely an eye opener. And it made me a lot more sympathetic to minorities because I was suddenly a minority. And it was a shocking thing to be a minority. It never occurred to me that I could ever be a minority, you know? So, I mean, it was a good, it was certainly a good lesson for me, a life lesson of how you treat the stranger amongst you. And I will say, though, most people were really nice to me. It's not like this was, this wasn't, but it was pretty much every day. A lot of Russian Jews have now immigrated to Israel. And I just got back from Israel actually last week. They all think I'm Russian. It's so great. I'm like, great, good. They think I'm Russian now. So and I don't think it's the same anymore. I think that it was really that particular time before there was this influx of Ethiopian Jews and Russian Jews and Jews from other countries. And so now you end up converting to Judaism. I did, right. Which, and I won't go into all right. of the many events right. along the way. I don't want to yeah. give everything away. Yeah. But now that you're an Upper West Side Jewish person yes. and you have like, you know, scenes from the Y and all these synagogues right. and right. You know, the West Side, how do you make sense of your sort of religious journey and how you got here? Like now do you feel like, yes, this is who you were always meant to be? Or like, what's your sense of, what's your like, what do you tell yourself about the whole thing? You know, I really do feel this is exactly who I was intended to be. And even though in many ways, I think that I stumbled into Israel accidentally because I wasn't planning on going there. There was the brochure. If if you want to be a little more mystical about it, you can say, as they would say in Yiddish, it's beshert. It's meant to be. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I don't really know. But I can only say that I'm happy with the choices I've made. I'm happy that it, this is the way it's turned out. For me, this was the right path for me. I don't 
it's certainly not the right path for everybody, obviously. And not everybody who goes to Israel decides they're going to become Jewish. They remain Christian, and, and that's okay, too. Obviously, I went to Israel when I was 19. So when you go at that time, when you really are kind of impressionable, then I think if you're open to it, you can you, you could find all sorts of different paths that you would never have had an option for in southern Indiana or on the Upper West Side of Manhattan or wherever you come from. And also being away from home is just such a liberating experience. It's like, hmm, nobody's around. I can do what I want. Literally, it's, you know, halfway across the world. So I think all of those things combine to it. But yes, this is, I feel that my identity, even if in many respects, I'm still kind of, you know, the kid from Indiana, obviously. But in terms of faith, Judaism has definitely offered me a different sense of faith and a different sense of an experience of God than I had before. Wow. Yeah. So what's coming next for you? I'm going back to my original love because I'm tired of talking about myself. <laughs> and so I'm working on a novel and it's a historical novel and it's not about me, although I think that fiction always ends up being about you one way or the other, even when you try to avoid it. And it's about, I'll give you a little bit, it takes place in the time of King David, which is one of my favorite eras, that Iron Age period. And again, I'm hopefully I will maybe educate people a little bit. I'm doing a ton of research again, which is a lot of fun. And I started off writing about Michal, who was King Saul's daughter and King David's wife. So she knew both of the first kingdoms of Israel well as the daughter and the wife, and that did not work out so well for her. So I'm uh, going to be writing about King David and that era through other lenses, not just his lens. So cool. Yeah, what a great having idea. fun. Oh my gosh. Thanks. Well, good luck. I can't wait to read that. Thank you. Do you have any parting advice to aspiring authors? Aspiring authors? Oh, I hope it doesn't take you 14 years, but... Um, <laughs> But if it does, it does. I think that my, one of the things I've heard many times from other writers is, you know, I don't know if I can write this. I don't know. What if my grandma read it? And it's like, you know what? Forget grandma because she's not going to read it. And you should only be so grateful that it gets published in the first place. So don't write the book thinking that it's going to be published and somebody's going to read it because it might not get published. Mm -hmm. So write it anyway. Write it despite everything. And if you get so lucky that the book gets, is accepted to be published, you can change it then. There's always time to say, you know what, forget it. I don't want that scene in there. That scene does not have to go in there. You can always change it later, but write what you want to write without anybody, not grandma, not anybody on your shoulder. And just write it because it's yours, you know? I love that. That's yeah. Really good. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for Moms having me. I appreciate it. I thank appreciate you. It. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks so much. Today's episode has been sponsored by the Iceland Readers Retreat. Don't forget to check it out April 29th to May 3rd, 2020, icelandreadersretreat.com. You can follow me on Instagram at moms don't have time to read books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 